Adrian Davis, a message entitled, That Others May Live. Thank you, Pastor Murray, and good afternoon, brethren. Great to see you all again after seeing everybody yesterday. Um, at the end of the, or near the end of the service yesterday, Pastor Watson gave us a formula to calculate the balance of our lives. And he basically said, take 25,000 days, take your age, multiply your age by 365, subtract that from 25,000, and that's how many days you have to live. And if we're over 70 years, we're on borrowed time. Well, I think that statement shocked a lot of brethren when they actually did the math to realize how little time they have left, and for many, that they're on borrowed time. And after the service, one lady said to those of us who were seated near her, she said, I don't know about anyone else here, but I know that if I die tonight, I'll make it. And I heard that. I don't know about anyone else here, but I know that if I die tonight, I'll make it. And I wanted to take my head and bang it against the wall. Over 70 years old, over four decades in God's church, and this is our perspective, I don't know about anybody else here, but I'll make it. There's something patently wrong with this perspective. That Christ's mind was all about others. And we call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ. Should not our minds be all about others? Doesn't that stand to reason? I think we are in danger of replacing the theology of being heaven-bound with being kingdom-bound. But it's the same basic traditional Christianity that I'm here to be saved. If I, if I behave myself and I walk the line, God will be pleased with me, and I'm not going to go to heaven. I'm going to go to the kingdom where I'll enjoy eternal life. How is that markedly different from the traditional Christians who believe they're going to heaven? And yet the Bible, when we understand it, is very different from traditional Christianity. I was in uh, Vancouver a couple of weeks ago, and I was to give a, a, a presentation there, and somebody came in late. And he came in and he hurriedly sat beside me. And I looked at his jacket, and there was a crest on the side of his jacket. And the crest said, that others may live. And I thought, wow, that is profound. And I happened to mention it that the following Sabbath, I was in Ottawa, and I just happened to mention this crest. And so one of the brethren there explained to me that this is uh, an organization, part of the Canadian Armed Forces, their search and rescue mission, the search and rescue technicians, and this is their, their slogan that they are on a search and rescue to save people, and they, they sacrifice everything so that others may live. And I thought that 
That is the Christian mindset. And that is the mindset that we should have. So I want to, today, focus on this Christian mindset. What is it that we're really a part of? Are we here to be good so that we can be in the kingdom? And like, you know, I hope you guys make it, but that's not really my concern. My concern is that I make it. Is, is that the, you know, decades in God's church and this is where we are? So what I'd like to do, just a little exercise. Let's suppose I'm going to write a book. The book is entitled, That Others May Live. It's going to have five chapters. So I'm just going to ask you to take, like, find a partner. So you're going to pair up. And uh, just take five post-it notes for each pair. So take five post-it notes for each pair. And don't forget uh, Lisa back. And I'm going to give you the five chapters. Write, write the name of each chapter on one post-it pad. And then you're just going to move them around to put them in order. So the book is entitled, That Others May Live. One chapter will be called Teachers. So write Teachers on one post-it. Okay, so teachers on one post-it. Another chapter will be called marriage. Marriage. A third chapter is gospel. Fourth chapter, beast. And the fifth chapter, atonement. So we have this book. It's entitled That Others May Live. It's got five chapters. Teachers, marriage, gospel, beast, and atonement. With your partner, put these in the sequential order that is going to tell the story of the Bible. So just take a moment, a couple of minutes, and put them in the sequential order that will tell the story of the Bible. And assume we're starting now, from this point in history. Okay, so you, you have um, the five chapters in sequential order. Now, your sequence may be correct. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just going to say, here is how I would tell the story. So hopefully, you chose as chapter number one, the beast. The beast. That's where I want to start. So the book is going to start chapter one, the beast. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And here we see the beginning 
of the prophet Isaiah's ministry. And we will we'll skip the first part of it, but he sees God on the throne. He believes he's undone because he's seen the Holy One of Israel, and he's unclean. Uh, he's a man of unclean lips. And one of the angels comes with a coal of fire and touches his lip to purify it. So that situation is, is resolved. And then in verse 8 he says, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? So I said, Here am I, send me. So he volunteered that he would go. And then God said, Go and tell this people, the people of Israel, Hear you indeed, but understand not. And see you indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. That would be a terrible thing if these people should convert and be healed. So make sure that as you preach, they have no understanding of what you're saying because we don't want them to be convert, to convert and be healed. Verse 11, so I said, Lord, how long? How long will this go on for where I'm going to be preaching your word and they'll have no idea what I'm saying? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. So until this judgment comes upon these people, they're not to understand. This, this judgment is necessary. It must happen. The land must be utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. And Christ actually quoted Isaiah, this particular passage when he was on earth, to explain why he spoke to his disciples plainly, but he spoke to the rest of the Jews in parables. He was fulfilling Deuteronomy 28. Let's go to Deuteronomy 28. There is a covenant curse upon these people. They entered into an agreement with God. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And the covenant was ratified. And God is faithful. What we learn from the Bible is God is faithful to the covenant. And so for him to just let these people off, he would be an unfaithful God. Because here in Deuteronomy 28, we see the condition, or one of the terms and conditions of the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, we'll just break in at verse 25. If you break the covenant, this is what's going to happen. The Lord shall cause you to be smitten before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. This is a covenant condition, that if you break the covenant, you're going to be taken from the land and spread to all of the other kingdoms of the earth. Instead of ruling over these kingdoms, they will rule over you. Verse 32, your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long, and there shall be no might in your hand. Verse 41, you'll beget sons and daughters, but you shall not enjoy them for they shall go into captivity. God is not joking. God means what he says. In verse 47, Because you serve not the Lord your God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, therefore shall you serve your enemies 
which the Lord shall send against you in hunger and in thirst. You're going to serve them in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he has destroyed you. God is not joking. The Lord shall bring a nation against you from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your land until you be destroyed, which also shall not leave either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of your kine or flocks of your sheep until he has destroyed you. And he shall besiege you in all your gates until your high and fenced walls come down wherein you have trusted throughout all your land, and he shall besiege you in all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. God didn't give these words to Moses to say, I I just want to threaten them. I just want them to feel a little bit nervous. When, when God speaks, he means exactly what he says. And so this was the agreement. And, and, and God is saying through Isaiah, you need to have these prophecies of what I'm going to do, but make sure these people don't understand it, lest they repent. If they just hear this and say, oh, we're, we're going to change, then I'm not going to be faithful to my covenant. So the land must be desolate. The people must be destroyed. Because this is what we agreed to. So this he's saying to them upon the release from Egypt. Egypt, we know, is one of the beast powers. And we define the beast or beasts as those political powers that destroy Israel. They consume Israel. That's why they're called beasts. So the first one is Egypt. And upon release from Egypt, God lays this covenant condition down. That if you disobey the covenant, I will rise up, I will raise up these powers to destroy you. And so this is going to be a pattern that repeats itself. In fact, it repeats itself seven more times. So that John, in looking back through history, identifies eight beasts. There are eight beasts in the book of Revelation. And yet in Daniel, Daniel only sees four. And he only sees four because Nebuchadnezzar only saw four. To Nebuchadnezzar, there was this great empire. But to Daniel, these are beasts. Daniel is a, a man of the covenant. And so these are not just great empires. They're beasts. But to Nebuchadnezzar, he saw four great empires. And yet John saw eight. So how do we reconcile these four beasts of Daniel with the eight beasts of Revelation? And so that's the first image that I want to show you here. Thanks. And, and what you can see now is we have the eight beasts. The first one is Egypt. After Egypt came Assyria. So they disobeyed God, and God sent Assyria, and, and exactly what in Deuteronomy happened. That was to the northern tribes. Then we had Babylon that took out the southern tribes. After Babylon came the um, Medo-Persians. And after the Medo-Persians, we had the Greco-Macedonians, so the Greek-Roman, and then the Roman Empire. And I'm proposing 
that the seventh beast will be Islamic. It'll be a Middle Eastern Islamic beast, and that seventh beast will also be the eighth. So John sees eight. And so he says, there are seven kings. So John is speaking. He says, there are seven kings. Five are fallen. One, two, three, four, five have fallen. He lives in the time of Rome. So he says, one is. That's the Roman Empire, the sixth. He says, and the other. It's, it's not the Roman Empire. It's, it's the other. So each of these beasts are separate and distinct from each other. This sixth one, he says, is. And he says, another one is coming. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh. And that's the one that goes into perdition. So I'm not saying that the beast is not Roman. Could be. I'm just saying, can we consider, based on what's happening in the world today, that maybe the beast is Islamic? And if, it's, if we say it's the sixth beast, is, is, the, is the final beast, then Rome would be the sixth, seventh, and eighth. And this, the scripture doesn't allow for that. The scripture says that the eighth is of the seventh, and the seventh is different from the sixth, just as the sixth is different from all the others. Now, Nebuchadnezzar only sees four. Why is that? In Daniel 2.39, he says, And after you, Nebuchadnezzar, shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, as iron breaks all these, it shall break in pieces and bruise. So Nebuchadnezzar only sees four. Now, whenever I would see this statue, in my mind's eye, I would lie it on its back, because it's a timeline. And so the head is the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and the toes are the time of Christ's return. But in lying on its back, or lying it on its back, I miss something fundamental, which you can only see if you allow it to stand vertically. When it stands vertically, what we realize is it is standing on a particular piece of real estate, and that's important. It is standing on the land of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar does not see the Roman Empire because it never conquered Babylon. So this Middle Persian Empire conquered Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar cares about that. Babylon is his land. Then the Greco-Macedonians conquered Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar cares about that. That's his land. Then Rome came along. It is a beast. It did destroy Israel, but it never conquered Babylon. Emperor Hadrian went in for about 30 days, suffered heat stroke, and withdrew. So they never captured Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care. So he does not have a line of sight to Rome. He sees through to the end empire, which is the Islamic empire. And the Ottoman empire was so vast, it made the Roman empire look like child's play. The, Romans, the Roman empire was nothing compared to the Ottoman empire. All the churches we read of in Revelation, that John warned the church or the churches that this beast power was coming, it is the Ottoman Empire or the Islamic Empire that went in and slaughtered them. And it's the seventh. So Nebuchadnezzar sees this as the fourth. He doesn't see the eighth. Why? John tells us. The eighth is of the seventh. They're, they're one and the same. And so when this empire fell in 1921, 
and it was dead and went away. And we've all been born at a time when Islam went, went nothing. Now it's being resurrected. And it's the same empire. And so Nebuchadnezzar sees these as one and the same. And although they were freed from Egypt, God warned them. You're entering into covenant with me. If you break this covenant, I will break you. And so this pattern repeats itself until the end time. So this is the beast power. And again, I don't want to say don't consider Rome. Could be. I'm saying don't exclusively consider Rome. Don't just look west. Look east as well. And I think what's happening, so three major problems I have with just considering Rome. The biggest problem is nothing is happening in Rome today. Nothing. And the church is getting complacent. The church is falling asleep. While this Islamic empire is gathering steam, it's gathering momentum, it's getting stronger and stronger all over the world. When you see that bombing in Sri Lanka that just happened the other day, Sri Lanka, basically a Catholic, Buddhist country, Afghanistan was entirely Buddhist. And this is how it became Islamic. So it's just a matter of time. Immediately on the heels of this bombing, the Catholic Church put out an edict uh, to its worshipers, don't go to church on Sunday. They've, su- they've surrendered. They've come under Islam. They've surrendered. To, to come under Islam does not mean to become a Muslim. The worst thing that could happen to Islam is that the whole world becomes Muslim. That is a disaster. Who would work? Well, how would they get their income? During the Ottoman Empire, they prevented Jews and Christians from converting. Somebody has to be the slave. Somebody has to work. As long as you submit to Allah, you can worship Yahweh. As long as you agree that Allah is greater than Yahweh, we don't care. Just pay your jizya. And so nothing is happening in Rome today, except that we see the Pope on February 13th, 2019. He signed a historic document with the leading Muslim imam, Sheikh Ahmed al-Tayyib, whose official title is the Grand Imam of the Al-Aqsa, this historic meeting between the head of the Roman Catholic Church and the most important imam in Sunni Islam took place in Abu Dhabi at a gathering of religious leaders representing Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. On the surface, the covenant is entitled, A Document on Human Fraternity for World Peace and Living Together. It stipulates its intention to foster peace between nations, religions, and ethnic groups. So that is what the Pope is doing. Meanwhile, Islam is getting stronger and stronger. And we keep looking at Rome and saying, nothing's happening, let's relax. Meanwhile, the whole world is slowly coming under Islamic domination. I mentioned also, number two, there are eight beasts, not seven. So when we only see seven, we think that the sixth is Rome and the seventh is the resurrected Rome. But the Bible says there are eight. So is Rome the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth? And as I mentioned, the vertical position of the statue matters. He was standing on a particular plot of real estate. And he only sees those empires that conquer that piece of real estate. And Rome never conquered Babylon. Chapter 2. So chapter 1 is the beast. In other words, we begin with the bad news. You broke the covenant. And now the covenant will break you. 
That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, the gospel. The good news is in the context of the bad news. The reason it's good news is because there's no hope for Israel. They broke the agreement, and now they must be destroyed. But we have good news. We have the gospel. Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, what I consider the foundational prophecy, that all the prophets throughout the Old Testament are basically referring back to and elaborating upon this fundamental prophecy that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 1, he says, and it shall come to pass, this will happen, when all these things, he just finished Deuteronomy 28, outlining all the blessings, and Deuteronomy, the rest of 28 and 29, where he outlines all the curses. And upon the heels of giving the terms and conditions of the covenant, he says, it shall come to pass. When all these things, chapter 28 and 29, have come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So Moses is saying, you're going into the promised land with a high hand, and I can see it already. You'll be blessed, but you're going to disobey. You're going to break the covenant, and it's going to break you. So when all these things are going to come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and shall return. So you're going to break this covenant, and according to the covenant, you're going to be scattered and enslaved. And then in verse 2 he says, and then you're going to return to the Lord your God, and you shall obey his voice. How? according to all that I command you this day. So Moses can see that they're going to repent and come back to this covenant wholeheartedly. Not fainheartedly, wholeheartedly. You and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses is looking at them and saying, wow, you guys are a disaster. But something's going to happen and you're going to be able to love God with your whole heart and your whole soul. Moses is seeing the new covenant. Moses is seeing these people filled with the Holy Spirit, because this is not possible carnally. He says that then the Lord your God will end your captivity. So you're going to go into captivity, but something's going to happen. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's when God will end your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations. And repeatedly through the Bible, we hear God is going to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Repeatedly. It's right here in the foundation. He's going to gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you because you broke the covenant. Let's, for example, look at Jeremiah 16. Again, all the prophets are going back to this foundational prophecy that Moses gave before they even went into the promised land. And just, you know, footnote, as Islam spreads throughout the earth, I think it's 1.8 billion adherents today, that claim that God is done with Israel, that he's turned them into apes and pigs, and that they must be destroyed. From the very foundation, before they even went into the promised land, Moses said, you're going to disobey, you're going to be destroyed, you're going to be scattered, you're going to be enslaved, but then you'll be brought back. God will be faithful to Abraham. 
That's the only reason they're going to be brought back, because of God's promise to Abraham, and he's faithful. Here in Jeremiah 16, and verse 12, we'll break in here. And here Jeremiah says, through, or God says through Jeremiah, you have done worse than your fathers. This is, how do you spell disaster? Except in all caps. This is a great disaster. You've done worse than your fathers. For behold, you walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore, Deuteronomy 28, will I cast you out of this land, into a land that you know not, neither you nor your fathers. God is faithful. This, is the, this was the agreement. And there you shall serve other gods day and night. And we could uh, kind of add some detail because Moses said, in hunger and in thirst. Because you wouldn't serve God with joy. You'll serve your enemies and their gods. There you shall serve your gods day and night where I will not show you favor. Therefore, because you're wicked, because I'm faithful to my covenant, because you'll be driven into these lands where you'll be enslaved, therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Does this make any sense? Because you're wicked, because you must be destroyed, therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But instead, the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, the king of the north, and from all the lands where he has driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Therefore, how do you get therefore out of that? Except to say that God, in addition to the covenant that he had with Moses, he had a covenant with Abraham. And he promised Abraham, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Therefore, even though you've broken the covenant and you deserve to be be destroyed, I've got to figure out a way to bring you back into the land. And how can he do that? How can he bring them back into the land and be faithful to his word? It's basically impossible. That if God, if God, if God does not allow them to be destroyed, and instead he just kind of winks at the sin and gathers them all and brings them back into the land, this makes no sense. Clearly this is talking about the second exodus, but it makes no sense. It would, it would make God an unfaithful God. It would make God an unrighteous God. It would make God a God that speaks and then goes against what he speaks. So this is a conundrum. How does he do this? Well, if we go to Isaiah 40, someone has the answer. You people deserve to be covenant destroyed. You deserve to be covenant destroyed. Oh, well, that's just the way it is. You agreed to this covenant, you broke the covenant, and now you must be broken. And yet someone comes on the scene obeying this command in Isaiah 40, verse 1. God says to somebody, comfort, comfort you, comfort my people, says your God. My people are being destroyed. My people are being enslaved. My people are being tortured. Their children are being beheaded. Pregnant women are being gutted. You, 
comfort my people. You who know what's going on, comfort my people. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem. Specifically now, the target is Jerusalem. Somebody who understands what's going on, speak comfort comfort to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. Something has been accomplished. It's over. There was purpose to this, and the purpose has been achieved, that her iniquity is pardoned. How can that be? Somebody understands. For she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So she has received the full weight of the covenant curse. In chapter 41 and verse 8, we begin to get some insight around this faithfulness where God says, but you, Israel, are my servant. So don't let anybody tell you God is done with Israel. He's not. He makes it clear through the prophet Isaiah, you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. God is not joking around. He's serious. And he's chosen Jacob. And he's not going to back down from this choice. He's chosen Jacob the seed of Abraham, my friend. Yes, there's a covenant in place with Jacob, the Mosaic covenant, but they are the seed of Abraham, God's friend. And there's a covenant in place with Abraham, which is, we could say it's unconditional. What we really mean is the only conditions of this covenant are God's. Abraham had no conditions to fulfill. And they are the seed of Abraham. Therefore, God must fulfill his promise to Abraham through this seed, despite the covenant in place through Moses. Verse 9, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth. That's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30. You will be gathered from the ends of the earth and called you from the chief men thereof, powerful men that they had to release the same way Pharaoh had to release Israel from Egypt. And I said unto you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you away. So brethren, if we're teaching that God is done with Israel, we're contradicting God. He's saying, I haven't cast you away. The seed of Abraham, I have not cast you away. What we're doing is understanding that we have a message to Abraham, seed. We understand how God is going to do this. God will not break his covenant with Moses. Therefore, he has to break you. And he will not break his Abraham, his quote, his covenant with Abraham. Therefore, he has to save you. But how? We understand how. And what I'm going to ask you to do is for the remaining three chapters, see if you can anticipate how I would write the rest of this book. So kind of reconfigure the remaining three chapters. What chapter is going to come next? And also, while you're at it, just jot down any questions. If anything is unclear so far, just take a moment. Share with each other what you understand so far and what's not quite clear. And we can talk about that in the sermon discussion. So what do you understand so far? What's unclear? And what, how, how would you roll out the remaining three chapters?
Okay. I'm going to write as the next chapter, Atonement. Atonement. <laughs> because I want to answer the question, how can a righteous God save these people that deserve covenant destruction? So we have good news, but how is it possible without God being a liar? Uh, Isaiah 41 and verse 14, God says, Fear not, you worm Jacob. So think of a worm completely defenseless and low. Fear not, you worm Jacob, and you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord. And your Redeemer, notice this, the Holy One of Israel. There is no one holy in Israel. Israel deserves destruction. And yet God says, I'm going to help you. I will be the representative of Israel. I will be the Holy One of Israel. I will fulfill the covenant conditions of the Mosaic Covenant. In chapter 53, and we'll just break in here because we've spent time with this passage during the Passover, but let's just pick up a couple of verses in chapter 53 and verse 4. He says, surely he has borne our griefs. And the big mistake we make as Christians is to think that he has borne the griefs of Gentiles. Surely he's borne the world's griefs. Isaiah is saying no such thing. How could we possibly say that Isaiah is saying? Isaiah has nothing to say about Gentiles. The whole vision is about Judah and Jerusalem. But the entire vision is about the people of Israel. And so if we take, if we just sort of pull these verses out of midair, we can say, oh, surely God has borne the griefs of the world. But if we read it in context, he's speaking about the covenant people. The covenant people that deserve to be destroyed. And now he says, sure, now he understands this suffering servant. And he says, I get it. Surely he has borne the griefs of Israel. Israel is in grief. And he has carried Israel's sorrows. Yet Israel esteemed him stricken. Israel thought he was the problem. Israel thought he deserved to be destroyed. And smitten of God and afflicted. But that's not true. What is true is he was wounded for Israel's transgressions. This, this is the solution. That Israel deserves to be covenant destroyed, and God's hand are tied to the faithfulness that he has to the covenant, and Jesus Christ came as the Redeemer. To say now, God can carry out the covenant curses upon me, and I am totally innocent. Because I am going to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant. When Christ was on earth, he constantly quoted from Deuteronomy. And he walked in the Deuteronomic law and fulfilled it perfectly. So that when he died, he had the right to the promised land, but he didn't take it. He had the right to all the covenant blessings, but he didn't take it. Instead, he said, I will represent Israel and I will take the curses. I will take the afflictions. And Israel, if they will accept me, they can accept the blessings and the promises of the covenant. So this is how God solves the conundrum, the dilemma, without breaking his word. That Christ came to earth. He was wounded for Israel's transgressions. He was bruised for Israel's iniquities. The chastisement of Israel's peace. How can Israel have peace with God when this covenant is in place? It was upon him. 
He's the propitiation. And with his stripes, we are healed. This is where the healing and the breach of the relationship comes from. Leviticus 16, where we see the instructions around the atonement. And I think what we miss in reading Isaiah 53 is it's not just a Passover passage. It's also an atonement passage. That Christ is not just the Passover sacrifice. He's also the atonement sacrifice. And there's a difference between the Passover and the atonement. Here in Leviticus 16 and verse 9, Moses writes that Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. This is picturing Christ. In verse 33, And he shall make an atonement, that is Aaron, for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests, and notice this, and for all the people of the congregation. And this is the fundamental difference between the Passover sacrifice and the atonement sacrifice. The Passover is very personal. Each person takes the blood and enters into a personal covenant with God, a personal relationship with the Savior. The atonement is not personal. The atoning sacrifice is national. When the high priest went in and the sacrifice was accepted, while he was in the Holy of Holies, the whole nation held its breath. The whole nation was on the edge of its seat to see, will he come out? Will, will the sacrifice be accepted? And when he came out, the whole nation celebrated because it meant the whole nation was forgiven. And so atonement is a national sacrifice, verse 34. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins. And it's done once a year. And he did as the Lord Moses commanded. So let's take a look now at the sacrifice. And here what we see is the Passover. And so in Exodus 12, verse 13, the blood shall be for you a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So as a result of the Passover, there is the Exodus. So the Exodus depends upon the Passover. No Passover, no Exodus. So because of the wrath being passed over, they lived and they could then uh, have the Exodus. So he says, you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for in this selfsame day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. So we celebrate the, the night to be much observed to celebrate this Exodus which depends upon the Passover. Now, as they slew the lamb, we know it was pointing to Christ. And so we see the same thing today, where we enter into a new covenant where Christ says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. When we accept this blood, we have our personal exodus. So our personal exodus depends upon the Passover sacrifice, where he says in Romans 6, Knowing this, our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So we are now leaving spiritual Egypt 
as a result of the Passover. So Passover enables Exodus. The initial Exodus, but now there's a spiritual Exodus as we leave spiritual Egypt. Now, as we go forward, we see the same thing. That this blood, that uh, the Christ, the Lamb's blood, is enabling this new covenant. He says in Jeremiah, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. With who? With Gentiles? It's very clear. With the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah. So this blood sacrifice is to enable this new covenant with Israel and with Judah. What we see, though, is we don't go straight to the second exodus. As a result of this blood covenant, or this blood, the blood of the new covenant, we go into the spring harvest, the first fruits harvest. What is special about the first fruit harvest? We're part of the armies of the Lord that will return with him. Jude says of Enoch, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So how does he come with ten thousands of his saints? Unless there's a first fruits harvest. So there will be ten thousands of first fruits that will be called out of season. Instead of being part of the full exodus, the, the ultimate gathering and, and the uh, impregnation of the Holy Spirit upon Israel. We don't wait until then. It happens early, out of season. Why? So that we can return with the Lord as his armies. But now we see, in addition to Passover, we see the atonement sacrifice. The atonement sacrifice we just read in Leviticus 16, which enables the second exodus. Unless the whole nation of Israel is forgiven, God cannot gather them from all over the world. And, and they can't be forgiven unless the Holy One of Israel comes, lives perfectly, and is sacrificed, not as the Passover, but as the atonement. And so we see now in Jeremiah 16 that this exodus is going to be so massive that even though the whole Holy Day system is built upon the exodus from Egypt. We won't talk about it anymore. That the whole Holy Day system will now revolve around this second exodus. That's how big this is going to be. So it begs the question, it begs the question, if this is so big, if this is the mission that God is on, how come our minds are not on this? How come if we talk about second exodus to the people of God, they're like, huh? This is what God is all about. This is going to be so big that forever, forever, we will say the Lord lives who gathered the people of Israel from the four corners of the earth. And people say, what about Egypt? We say, what, what? Egypt, that was nothing. That was child's play. Look what he did here. Revelation 20. The teaching that trumpets pictures the return of Christ. It's a time of war. It's a time of conquest. It's a time when God returns with his ten thousands of saints and puts down the Gentile nations. 
That is sound. What is not sound is to say that atonement pictures the time when the world will be at one with God. We did not get this from the Bible. Revelation 20, verse 7. God has returned. Atonement has occurred. We're now into the millennium. The millennium is over. And when the thousand years, verse 7, are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are supposed to be at one with God, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. How can we say the world is at one with God? When Satan is able to gather people that the, the, the number is as the, it's, un, it's innumerable, the number of people who hate God and want to act against him and destroy his saints. Not only that, at the beginning of the millennium, there are people who refuse to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, that God has to send a plague upon them. Can we say the world is at one with God? No. Well, who's at one with God? Israel. It is the at-one-ment of Israel. It is the time of the national forgiveness of Israel. And now Israel is at the, as the head nation, at one with God. And these people are against God and against Israel. Luke 9. When our kids were younger and we lived in the country, we wanted to get a dog. And I researched all the breeds. Because I wanted a dog that would be good with the kids. But I was also a long-distance runner. And I wanted a dog that could run. So I researched all the breeds, and I found it. I don't know if you're familiar with the Weimaraner. Do you know the Weimaraner? So I, I, just, I fell in love with this dog. I'm like, okay, I'm get, we're going to get a Weimaraner. And I just happened to mention it to my manager that I worked for at the time. And he's like... He knew the dog well. He's like, have you had a dog before? And I said, no, no, this will be our first dog. He's like, mm, you don't want a Weimaraner. And he said, why don't you get a Vizsla? And so we, we looked up Vizsla. It's very similar to a Weimaraner, but it's smaller. Different color as well. One is gray, one is the other. Uh, Vizsla is copper. And he said this. He said, if you haven't had a Weimaraner before, you'll have trouble. It's a difficult dog, and it, you have to show it who's boss. He says, the Vizsla wants to please you. So the Vizsla will go out of its way to make you happy. And if you've never had a dog before, I would start with the Vizsla. So I looked at the Vizsla, and I just I had my heart set on the Weimaraner, uh, but I thought, difficult dog. We've got young kids. We never had a dog before, so we started to look at the Vizsla. What wonderful advice. So I think some of you knew Kenya, and you might not have known her when she was in her prime, what a dog. I still think of her to this day. And uh, she would love to run. She was great with the kids. Just a, a very intelligent dog. We, she had a great vocabulary. So we could just teach her a lot of different commands. And uh, what, what I found fascinating about her was she'd be sleeping on the floor, deep sleep, and then she would hear me get up. So Sunday mornings, I'd go for my long run. She'd hear me get up. She would go from a deep sleep to, oh, we're going for a run. We're going for a run. Okay, good. We're going. And she would be out there running, and uh, she just loved to do that. Uh, she could be in a deep sleep, and I'm going in the backyard. Oh, we're going in the backyard. It's like, if it's important to you, it's important to me. I don't care about my sleep. I just care about what's important to you. What's important to you? Okay, let's do that. That was Kenya. 
And I think that is a great metaphor for how we should be. Christ, if it's important to you, it's important to me. What's important to you? What are we going to do next? And Christ is all about Luke 9. Luke 9. We look at Luke 9, and we'll just drop down to verse 30. He says, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah. So this is a very important conversation. He's brought them back to life. He's having this conversation. Who appeared in glory, and what did they speak about? So they've come back to life. What's the most important thing to God? What's, what's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? What is the most important thing to Christ? He spoke of his, the English says deceased, the Greek says his exodus. He spoke about his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The second exodus is a big deal to Christ. He has covenant love for Israel. And he's figured out a way to bring Israel back into covenant with him. And this is top of mind for him. Lord, if it's important to you, it's important to us. I know that if I die tonight, I've done something to contribute to this great mission of the exodus of Israel. Matthew 25. And Brother Landon read this passage for us. We'll just take a couple of verses. Matthew 25, verse 22. He also that had received two talents, similar to the five talents, came and said, Lord, you gave me two talents, and behold, I gained two more talents beside them. Because I know what's important to you, and that was important to me. And I labored, and I sacrificed, and I worked hard. And his Lord said unto him, Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things, and similar to the five talents, he says to the one with two talents, enter you into the joy of your Lord. What is the joy of the Lord? What is his joy? That he's saying, come, enter into the joy of the Lord. There's something that make, that, that is, is top of mind for Christ. And it's his joy. And he's called us out of time, out of season, to help him with this joy. You know, it's like a rich, a wealthy businessman. Let's say he's in South America. Very, very wealthy. Multi-billionaire. And his children are kidnapped. And there's a ransom. And he refuses to pay the ransom because he knows if I pay this ransom, this is just going to happen over and over again. So he hires us as secret agents. And he says, look, I'm going to put $200 million in your account. You just get my children back. And if you need more money, I'll give you more money. Just get my children back. And I'm not paying a ransom. It's not the money. It's the principal. And so we walk into the bank, and they're like, Mr. Kowalchuk, Mr. Davis, Mr. Palmatier, Mr. Dale, Wow. Are, are you are you the the Mr. Dale? Like, yeah, that's me. Wow. We see the money in your account. We want you to know you are a VIP member of this bank. We have special occasions. They're private events. We don't tell everybody about them. 
but we want you to know to be our guest of honor. And so we show up, and in fact, we don't even drive there. The limousine picks us up, brings us in. We're greeted with all kinds of respect, and we are introduced personally to world leaders, famous celebrities, and everybody's just fawning over us because they know how wealthy we are. And this, start, this attention starts to go to our head. So much so, we forget the mission. We're drunk on the attention, on the privilege of being these special people. And after a long time, the wealthy businessman comes back and says, where are my children? Oh, yeah, right, the children. We completely forgot. We loved being in this privileged position. And that's how I see ourselves as first fruits. Somehow, this calling is all about us. This privileged position we're in, it's all about us. And we've forgotten that God is on a rescue mission. And he's recruited us early to return with him to save his people. Kick the people to the curb as long as I make it. This is the first fruits mindset that we have, brethren. And it's kind of um, paradoxical and unfortunate that the more we keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the more leavened we become. The more we keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the more we convince ourselves that it's all about us, the first fruits. Instead of keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread and realizing, wow, this is a big mission. And we're recruited early to help in this mission. That's getting the leaven out. That it's not about us. And if we have to sacrifice our lives, if we have to live in discomfort, if we have to be humiliated, so be it. If it's important to Christ, it's important to us. And this second exodus is what's important to our Lord. Chapter 4. Teachers. Teachers. Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12, and here we see what Enoch said, that the Lord will return with ten thousands of his saints. There's a great war. And in Zechariah 12, the prophet writes, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. God is burdened for Israel, says the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth. Just in case you weren't sure which Lord. There's going to be a lot of confusion about who's God in the end time. We're talking about the true God. And forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. So the focal point of the earth at the end time is Jerusalem. The controversy on the earth at the end time is Jerusalem. And God says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the Gentile people around it when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. So these Gentile peoples have such a hatred for the Jews, and they want to destroy Jerusalem. And God's saying, I'm going to make this a cup of trembling. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. Though all the people of the earth 
be gathered together against it. So it's going to look hopeless. The whole people have come under this beast power, and they all agree that the Jews and Jerusalem must be destroyed. And then he says here, we'll just uh, scroll down to verse 8. He says, in that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we're going to be there with him. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is what, this is just repeating Moses. That he says, you're going to uh, love me with all your heart. So God's going to pour upon these people when they're in the siege. The spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So trumpets then will enable atonement. And now his people will be at one with him, just as Moses wrote. And, and Joel, Joel says he'll pour out his Holy Spirit on them and they will prophesy and their uh, sons and daughters will see dreams. Isaiah 30. So now we have them at one with God. And what do we see here in Isaiah 30? What did the prophets see? So now the people of God have been gathered from the four corners. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They're like us now. So we have the Holy Spirit. We love God. We love his word. We do all we can to get the leaven out of our lives so that we can obey him and love him and be in intimacy with him. This is where they are now. They go into the millennium like we are now. And then in Isaiah 30 and verse 18, we're no longer where we are now. We are now born into the family of God. When Christ returns, if we have the Holy Spirit, we are caught up together with him in the air. And we're now in his family. And so they're like we are today. We are like Christ. And here in Isaiah 30, verse 18, And therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you, Israel. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you, Israel. For the Lord is a God of judgment. We saw that in Zechariah 12. Blessed are all they that wait for him. So somebody has been preaching the gospel to these people. And they now accept the word of God, and they're waiting for him. And when he returns, they acknowledge him. Verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem, regardless of what the heathen say, regardless of their armies, regardless of their Quran. The people will dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. I say so. And I'm the God who created the universe. And I don't care how powerful they are. They will eat dust and they will lick your feet and they'll bow down to you. So says God through Isaiah. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity, although you broke the covenant and the covenant had to break you, And you're going to receive the water of affliction. Everything that I said in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. 
yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner. They will have teachers. Somebody has been preparing for this. Somebody said to Christ, if it's important to you, Lord, it's important to us. And somebody got busy studying and understanding so that we could teach. We are students now so that we can be teachers then. And yet, your teachers will not be removed into it. In other words, God will stop hiding himself. God will now be very apparent. And with all of these maybe hundreds of millions of people, we don't know how many, but all of them, certainly millions, will have teachers. And your eyes shall see your teachers the same way Christ appeared after his resurrection and then could just disappear and appear again. This is how we will be. But your eyes shall see your teachers and your ears shall hear a word behind you. So the curse has been lifted. The cities were made desolate. And now their eyes are opened and their ears are unstopped. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, look, this is the way. Walk you in it when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. And why will we do this? Because if it's important to Christ, it's important to us. And there's a finish line. And we're not at the finish line yet. God's intention is to harvest Israel. We're the spring harvest. We're nothing. We're peanuts. The fall harvest is the thing. The only reason we're called now is to help God with the fall harvest. And throughout the millennium, we're like, no, don't do that. You are of Israel. You need to be with us in the kingdom of God. Get on the right track so that we can all cross the finish line together. And that brings us to the final chapter, chapter 5, marriage. Revelation 20. This is the finish line. This is the joy of the Lord. This is what God is pressing toward. This is what's top of mind for him and needs to be top of mind for us. In Revelation 20, and in verse 15, we see this. That whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is it. You're either for God or you're in the lake of fire. It doesn't mean, though, that if you are written into the book of life, you're part of the marriage. Let's not read that into the Bible. Maybe it's true, but let's not read it in there if it's not there. So there are people that are thrown into the lake of fire. They're done. They're gone. There are people who are in the Lamb's book of life. Let's not automatically assume that everybody that's in the book of life is in the marriage. Revelation 21 and verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. To Deacon Jan's point, that's renewed, kindness. So the same way we have a renewed covenant, now there's a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city. Would you believe it? I saw this. It was New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, absolutely breathtaking. And it was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is a great mystery. 
And what John is saying is, it looks like a bride. And I think how we should interpret this is as a wedding dress and the woman is veiled. This is the adornment. And it's coming down from heaven to cover the bride. The bride is going to be in it. This is the city that the saints will inhabit. In my father's house are many mansions. And so the saints are going to inhabit this. But I don't think just because you're in the book of life, you'll be in the New Jerusalem. Food for thought. That this New Jerusalem is for Israel, whom he will marry. He says, I will be glorified in Israel forever. It implies that there will be people outside of Israel doing the glorifying. So this bride is adorned for her anir, her husband, which is Christ. And the actual word bride means to veil as a bride. So this is the veil that's coming down. Verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, it says, is with men. I think, based on everything I've read in Isaiah, that this is Israel. That God is going to dwell with Israel. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. They've suffered. They've been afflicted. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are true and faithful. That word faithful implies covenant. That God has now fulfilled everything in his covenant with Abraham. Verse 12. It had a wall great and high and had 12 gates. So this new new city has 12 gates. You can't get into the city unless you come through one of the gates. And at the gates, 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. This belongs to Israel. And you can't get in unless you come in through one of the 12 tribes. Hold your place here and come with me to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. And just keep in mind that the New Jerusalem has 12 gates, each gate one of the tribes of Israel. And here in Deuteronomy 32, Moses writes in verse 7, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. So the nations have an inheritance, and the Most High God gave them their inheritance. So what Satan is doing is the opposite of what God wants. God wants the nations to have their inheritance with borders. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the borders of the people. How? According to the number of the children of Israel. So all the earth, all the Gentiles' peoples are assigned to a tribe of Israel. 
And so I'm putting forward the notion that the Gentiles, though they will live forever, they are not Israelites. And they will come and worship in the New Jerusalem. And they will come through the gate that is assigned to them. Let's go back to Revelation. Actually, sorry, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 32. He says, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. So God wants to inherit Israel, and he wants the world to interact with him through Israel. So he's assigned each nation a tribe, and these are the kingdom of priests, and they will come through the gates. Revelation 21. This is the big mission. And to limit our view to the first fruits is to miss the magnitude of what we're a part of. Revelation 21 and verse 23. And the city, it doesn't say the earth. Revelation 21 verse 23. The city, not the earth. The city had no need of the sun. The earth still needs the sun. The Gentiles still need the sun. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved. So John makes it clear. There's the bride, and there are the nations of them which are saved. Shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth. So John makes it clear. There are nations. And they have kings. And there's the new Jerusalem. That God marries. And the kings of the earth. Do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it. Shall not be shut at all by day. So the gates are open all the time. So that these nations. Can come and worship. For there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And so I think we just need to be careful how we read. I'm not saying it's so. I'm saying, can we at least read the Bible and consider it? And as Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. So don't, don't believe me. Let's just read the Bible and what does it say? John saw something. And he saw this new Jerusalem coming down like a bride. And it covered the saints. And the saints live in it. And they don't need the sun. But the nations come to it with their offerings and worship. This crest that I saw, and I looked up. So this organization, Canadian Armed Forces, they say here, a high level of competency and skill is required in order to function in the high-risk environment of search and rescue in Canada. We're part of a search and rescue mission. And if a high level of competency and skill is required for these people, what about us? The training that the Canadian Armed Forces search and rescue technicians undergo is intense. Our training is intense. As are the conditions in which they operate we are going to be operating in some very intense conditions. They must establish and build 
build confidence in their technical skills and have complete trust in both themselves and their teammates. That's what this is all about. That's what this first fruits process is all about. Building confidence, not so much in ourselves, but in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that's in us and the Holy Spirit that's in our brethren. And learning how to operate as a team because we have a big mission ahead of us. Look at this quote. This is the pledge that they take after their training, as they graduate. And think of this, if we are Christians, shouldn't we be superior to this? Without regard for my personal comfort or self-advancement, I hope I make it. I want to be a king without regard for my personal comfort or self-advancement to the best of my ability and to the limitations of my physical and psychological endurance, I solemnly pledge to make every effort to return to safety those victims of the covenant disaster that they entered into, entrusted to my care by the assignment of the mission to which I have consented. These things I shall do that others may live. Brethren, let's stand and end in prayer. as we say goodbye to our online audience, and then we'll continue the rest of the service. Heavenly Father, our great God, we bow in humility and awe as we consider, Father, your righteousness, as we consider your faithfulness and the faithfulness of your word. And Father, make us like Abraham, where he understood that it's impossible for you to lie. And he believed you, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Help us, Father, to believe your word. And Father, thank you so much for drawing us to Christ. And help us, Father, coming through these days of unleavened bread to get self just expunged from our thinking. Help us, Father, to have the mindset, if it's important to Christ, it's important to us. And this mission, that this rescue mission that he's on is so important to him that by rescuing Israel and establishing Israel, we can return the earth back to the state it was in in the Garden of Eden where man can live forever in fellowship with you. But we understand, Father, that you will be glorified in Israel. And so we thank you, Lord, and we pray that we will we'll have this mindset, this purposefulness, this mission, and that these things we will do and suffer and endure, that others, Israel and all mankind, may live forever. We thank you, Father. We praise you. We thank you for the days of unleavened bread, the Passover, wonderful festival, lessons that we have each year. And we ask you, Father, this will be a springboard now as we count toward the holy day of Pentecost. Praise you, thank you, and ask your blessing now. In Jesus' most holy name, amen. Brethren, with that,